within the last 25, 30 years, fame itself became an extremely valuable thing to people. Divorced from anything else. And that is basically the fault of Andy Warhol. But I mean, one of the things Andy did was he made fame more famous because Andy kept like using the word fame all the time. It was a joke. Let me assure you, this was a joke. You take these drag queens who are actually criminals because it's against the law to wear a dress if you're a man at the time, and you say, this drag queen, you're, who they, of course they want to be a movie star. They want to be an exact movie star. In other words, you know, Candy Darling, you know, wants to be exactly, you know, Marilyn Monroe. Okay, this is a drag queen fantasy. At the time, no one takes it seriously, except Candy does. And then Andy says, you're not just a movie star like Marilyn Monroe. You're a superstar. He makes it up. It's a joke. It's a joke. This is what ruined the world. This is what happens when an inside joke gets into the water supply. Voy en bicicleta por un camino de tierra. Los coches aparcados tienen pelos de hierba. Cuesta arriba, pero no me canso. Y crecen flores por cada rincón que paso. Las flores son rojas, azules y amarillas. Mi mirada al verlas brilla, que brilla. Está todo oscuro, la noche está avanzada. Y qué más da que alumbra el sol allá desde su almohada. Oh, well, hello, everyone. Uh, this is Bicycle Mark also known as Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. I'm um, coming to you from Amsterdam. This is a podcast, in case you got lost on the internet. I'm just uh, at home, got some groceries, and I'm unpacking them. Um, and this is an update from the summer because, you know, turn around and the summer is over. It's now August 20-something-something, and September is this week already. So, um, of course, there have been many podcasts on the Source Code Berlin channel. So let me just promote that, Source Code Berlin. Just put the uh, show up from Hacker Camp, and you can go over to sourcecode.berlin and listen. Uh, if you like this podcast, you should like that podcast. You don't have to uh, be a fan of Berlin, though it might help, but uh, I think it's interesting for anyone. Um, so indeed, there have been shows there, but you and I, here on Citizen Reporter, we have not spoken since, probably since Portugal. Uh, I'm using a little clip-on mic, which um, should be fine. Here, I'm going to adjust it. You ready? Adjustment. If I do it right, you shouldn't feel it. Uh, but uh, so then you'll hear not only my voice, um, I think it sounds a little bit strange, but that's part of podcasting, ladies and gentlemen, experimentation. That is how podcasting was invented. I don't know what that sound was. We have neighbors who occasionally uh, sing or play some kind of horn or lose their minds generally and, and we have to listen. Uh, that's collective life. That's urban life to some extent. Uh, so, yeah, there are a lot of children. I'm here in, um, let's see, my home since July in Amsterdam. I've moved twice in the last year uh, from a time where I never used to have to move. But now my partner and I have settled here in uh, De Pijp, uh which is a very fun neighborhood of Amsterdam. If you ever come to this city or have been to the city, you have surely hung out in the pipe uh, because it is fun to hang out in. It's also incredibly hipster, so there is a downside. Um, 
I see more Airbnb people every day than I do actual neighbors, and I'm not really sure how to feel about it. Um, but it's it's definitely a strange feeling. It's a you know this whole impact of Airbnb on our urban culture. I think we're only starting to feel it. Um, here I'm going to make some chai, so I'm taking out the instruments for which to make Indian chai. But I think that years from now we will better understand what it is that's been going on here because it's not it's not just tourism and it's not just the same as when people stayed in hotels it's it's really it's it impacts a community it's uh, it changes the feeling it changes the way we interact with one another not necessarily all negative um and not necessarily positive it's it's something else and that else is is very new and very confusing um so you know and what can you do amsterdam is such a tourism focused city uh disappointingly so i think it's a shame when a city is too focused on tourism and um the residents of that city uh who have so much to offer or overlooked or or abused in a way when it comes to costs of living and stuff so you know tourism is cool i'm i'm a tourist very often in my life i'm going to tell you about some tourism i did this this last month or so um but uh, you know within reason within balance um you never i never want a country or a city or a neighborhood that is 100% dedicated to tourism because um it becomes very hard to to do anything else uh tourism is is if it's if it, you know it's it's everywhere and it's it's it becomes hard to just do your everyday stuff um and of course people don't interact with you they more look at you or act like they don't really belong here they're just kind of passing through so you have a different logic you you throw your garbage wherever maybe i don't know it depends on the kind of tourism but um yeah you know no i i like when um communities are can have their share of visitors and can have their share of locals and people doing things in the neighborhood and some people working from home and some people not I I I have a certain taste in all this and it matters to me. I guess that's a sign of old age. Uh I think when I was a student this stuff didn't matter to me and now it, it kind of does. Um but regardless, here I am in a uh, in a finally in a living situation first time in my life that I don't have roommates. Um no not counting my parents, but the, they, I guess they were also roommates or I was their roommate. But um now it's just me and my partner who uh, she's currently away in Russia and uh so it's just me. And that brings an opportunity like old times to uh to turn on a microphone uh and talk, right? And that's what's become so hard in 10 years of podcasting. Let me repeat that. The thing that has become difficult after 10 years of podcasting is to just turn on a microphone and talk. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. I'm not joking. I I I'm serious. Um why is it that life became so busy? Is it that is it that I said so many things already that I feel like there's nothing new to add? Um you know, I, I so let's go in reverse order. um more or less i have been to hacker camp ccc 2015 maybe some of you have as well um if if maybe we we had a tea together that would have been wonderful 
Um, I can't think of a single tea that I drank at Hacker Camp that wasn't a pleasant experience, so there's that. I'm, I'm, I'm working on chai. I'm you know, slicing the cardamom. Cardamom. It's very important. Uh, I like to open it up. This is a cooking show. Welcome, Citizen Reporter Cooks. Anyway, Hacker Camp, uh, always a great experience, a life-changing experience. At some point, if you've had so many life-changing experiences, does that count as changing anything? I don't know. Um, I have been very fortunate in my life to have been to now five camps, I think. I think it's five. It might be four. I don't know. I exaggerate. I have that thing where I exaggerate too much, like I'm trying to prove myself. I've been to a bunch of camps, and uh, I've been around. I've met some people. I've done some things. And this one was just as good as any of the others, if not better. Um, It's definitely more crowded than ever before, 4,500 plus. Uh, That's different. I remember Germany 2007, it might have been 2,500 people. It's a little harder to keep track of everyone and find people, but it is doable if you do not sleep, which is basically a prerequisite for coming to camp anyway, so... No problem. Um, now, why do I mention camp besides the uh, the whole impact of where I've been? Uh, there was a reason. Well, it was a lovely experience anyway. And a lot of conversations with people from different corners of the world. Not, not super, super diverse, but pretty diverse, which is great. Um, and uh, lots of interesting things. Yes. But, oh yeah, so at that camp, um, because I do this program and because I do Source Code Berlin, where, you know, now I have people counting on me in another way, not just audience, but I have a sort of management uh, project partners that that are counting on me. That's a different kind of pressure. Um, So when I'm at camp, one of the ideas is that I'm going to do podcasts. Um, on various topics, and that's not new, but oddly enough, after, again, 10 years of doing this, it has become harder than ever before in my mind, in my mind, this is mostly in my mind, um, to ask someone for an interview. <laughs> not the asking part, but to do it, to, to interrupt natural conversation, which I'm a big fan of. And have to introduce this object, this microphone, this unnatural thing. You know, the biggest crime that the microphone is guilty of is is changing a conversation. Its presence changes things. People do not act exactly like themselves. Now, some people act pretty close to themselves, which is very good. I try to. I hope I do. Um, But there's a pressure. Um, And especially for some people, if I'm asking questions about work, for example, um, well, maybe you're on vacation. It's hacker camp. So now I'm going to make you talk about work. Maybe you would have talked to me over tea, but now I'm asking specific questions about what stuff that you do in the workplace. Now, all of a sudden, it's official. You see where I'm going? This becomes very difficult. Now, I know it, it sounds like silly from someone who's done you know, 500 podcasts and and another 50 for other organizations. And I have plenty of experience. And yet, somehow, I I find it harder than ever to do this. Not 
not the putting together of a show, not the editing of a show, although that I can obsess over, but the, the asking someone in the physical presence, present, to let me bring out a microphone and let me ask you a bunch of questions and let you be recorded. Uh, which means you have to be careful what you say, you have to choose your words wisely, other people are judging you, it's, it's no longer, it has a lot more riding on it than a normal conversation. So uh, I was trying every day to do interviews at Hacker Camp, and I told a lot of my friends, maybe you're listening, um, the frustration that I had, the, the disappointment that, just me, I'm disappointed in me, I cannot do it. And then there is a secondary part, which is, you know, people... <laughs> People can be difficult sometimes that, you know, they'll say they want to do the interview and then, and then won't, I mean, uh, or won't show up or, or will get busy. I, I had a situation, I'm working on a show for the 20th anniversary of Seabase, which is this hack space, hacker space in uh, Berlin. Lovely place. I think I've at least done one show from there on this program. And uh, I was interviewing various members of Seabase who don't know me. Some do, but many don't. And at some point, one that I actually do know quite well, I won't name names, but I came to him, he, I think he was tired, everybody's tired, it's hacker camp, you're always tired, but okay, he was especially tired, and he said, we'll do it tomorrow, and I don't know what day it was, but I knew when you say we'll do it tomorrow at a place like that, it's not going to happen, or the chances increase that it's not going to happen. And I said to him, based on experience, if you say we'll do it tomorrow, there is a very good chance we will not do it. And he said, we will. Now, uh, the next day I showed up to look around for him. He wasn't around and I had to go. There were lots of complications. So here, here we come back to my conclusion based on experience. Um, you may have nothing but good intentions, uh, but in the end, uh, it doesn't happen. It, uh, it, 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 uh, it's very easy for these things not to happen. People, it, it's, it's really hard. And you can say, well, if this is journalism, right, or what is this? This is radio reporting or whatever you want to call it, this thing that I do. Um, in order to do it well, well, then you should be someone who is good at, not afraid of, not self-conscious, that would help, um, so that you can ask people, and I'm going to use the word bother them, uh, like convince them to talk to you. That's a skill that I think is supposed to be part of this gig. And my thing is, I don't know if I have that skill. Um, and I find if you're irritating, you know, if you cross that line from persistent to irritating, well then it's no longer a, a, a pleasant or friendly or comfortable conversation. I am in the comfortable conversation business. Now, journalism often prides itself in being in the, in the asking the hard questions business. Respect to asking the hard questions, absolutely, but I would like a comfortable conversation. And therefore, if you don't feel like talking right now, I'll wait. The problem is, when are you going to feel like talking? Will we miss an opportunity? How many times do I have to come back and look for you? Uh, shall I not look at you directly? I mean, the amount of factors at play. Um, I know it doesn't help that I'm Woody Allen-esque in my, in my fears, but it was very, very difficult. I, I've had this happening for a while now where getting interviews for podcasts is exhausting. 
Um, and I'm saying this after a decade of doing it. <laughs> Am I getting weaker? It's possible. Am I getting tired? Also possible. But all I know for sure is that I am having difficulties. That's why I love the idea, though I don't know that you're listening, but I love the idea of doing what I'm doing right now. Turning on a microphone, talking honestly, it's a bit of a monologue, but I think you've been in these types of situations, or at least you can follow what I'm explaining. By the way, the chai now has its black tea, it has um, its cardamom, it has ginger, it has uh, cinnamon, it has cumin? No, it does not have cumin. It has, well, something, nutmeg. It has nutmeg. So we're doing great. And I'm telling you all this because I want to keep track of all the spices uh, so I don't miss one. Now, the key ending here is bad for your health, and that is condensed milk. Um, uh, you may know that I am not uh, from the subcontinent of India. I find they have the best chai in the world depending where you are, but um, I am pretty good at making it and I like my recipe, but it does have condensed milk. Okay, so that was the story of Hacker Camp, or at least part of it, because of course, besides trying to get interviews, I also tried to sp spend time with friends, sing karaoke, and I've, I've achieved all this, by the way, uh, tried to see things I've never seen before, meet new friends, um, watch a few talks, and when I say a few, I can count them on one hand, uh, sing uh, not only karaoke, but uh, ukulele songs, and um, maybe I'll include uh, Kate's ukulele song on this podcast. It's technically a copyright infringement. We changed the lyrics to two mainstream songs from the 60s, but um, I don't care. I'm going to play it. And uh... NSA. All my data seems to flow your way It's like every little thing I say You store away O-N-S-A B-N-D You've lost the trust of Germany There's a shadow hanging over me And it is you O-B-N-D Why they Say you did something wrong when you gave our data away. And I said, You're running out of things to play, and you're too big now to hide away. Oh, we can see you, NSA. So Hacker Camp was impressive, a lot of talk about privacy, of course, that's something I think you all come to expect, uh, a lot of talk about community and spaces, um, and uh, leaks, of course, that's been going on for about, what are we at with leaks, six years almost we've been talking about leaks, and that's, that's good, I think, I mean, the awareness Hi, I watched Sarah Harrison talk. Uh, I don't really follow Sarah Harrison's career. I know many of you do, 
She is the one who helped Edward Snowden get out of China and get to Russia, which, um, which on paper is a bit like saving you from getting, I don't know, stabbed and you get shot instead. What I'm saying in a bad way is that I don't consider Russia much better than China, but all right, fair enough. In this case, it works better for his safety, so pardon my, my misguided joke. Uh, but respect my uh, right to try and tell a joke, okay? All right. And there were, it was at a, um, a brick-making factory, hacker camp. And so you had, one of the side effects was that the, the brick-making factory had a lot of little mini railroad for, for transporting their bricks. And so we had, yes, little railroad everywhere you went. Um, so at night and during the day there were trains at night they wouldn't move as much out of respect for the families, family village. But during the day, the trains were going around. Hackers were on trains. I was sitting outside of my tent at one point and a train passed and someone yelled, Bicycle Mark, there's a ball pit on the train. And I looked up and it was Jetzt and he was uh, at the front of the train where there's a bar car. And he was very excited. I learned later that he was helping keep the trains running on time <laughs> and uh, keeping them decorated with LEDs and all kinds of decorative thingies. Um, so this was very interesting and funny and there was a lot of swimming. Uh, one morning I went alone, I left campground, well, right next door and went to a lake where I jumped into a lake and swam. Excuse me, while I eat a piece of a, well, it's candy to be honest. It's healthy candy, don't worry. Don't judge me. I hadn't thought about the fact that I'm talking when I just started eating. I'm just doing what I normally do, only I'm podcasting. It's probably a bad idea. All right, so before Hacker Camp, no, after Hacker Camp, there we go, I made my way from Berlin through Poland via Gdansk, which is in the north, to this Russian enclave, Kaliningrad. Have you heard of this place? Look on a map. It's Russia, but it's not connected to Russia. It's underneath, it actually divides. So there's Poland, and if you follow the Baltic Sea, eventually there's Lithuania. But in between, there's this landmass that is part of Russia, although it doesn't touch any Russian border. And historically, this was East Prussia. I don't have the history in front of me. I'm just going to go with what I read here and there. Um, and for a while, it was also German. And a lot of what you see, I have to say, in my opinion, the most beautiful buildings are from the German era and the Prussian era. And um, now it's been Russian. It had been Russian a few times. And then most recently after World War II, and um, it's interesting. It's the only, of course, Baltic port of Russia and therefore strategically important. Don't you like when people say that? Strategically important. If your strategy is to uh, trade or, or have warships or... Well, there's lots of ways you can have strategy. So I uh, went to Kaliningrad together with my dear partner, who is Russian, so that's handy, and uh, explored. Explored ships because they have uh, a museum of ocean of museum of world oceans and i was in a submarine from the 1950s i was examining the long history 
of submarines in, Ru in Russian in the Russian Navy and the accidents. I'm really fascinated by the amount of accidents. So many people have died in these these what are essentially little tubes we we throw in the ocean and drive around underwater because it's sneaky. And uh, Russia really has uh, a long tradition of it and, and a sad tradition. I found stories of the, you may remember this, the Kursk. Do you remember? It was about 2000. Hang on while I get a cup. It was about 2000 when a Russian submarine, which was apparently huge, it had a gymnasium, it had all kinds of things, it had some, I don't know, 200, 100 something, a couple hundred people on it, and it, there was an explosion on this submarine. Is this sounding familiar? And it was disabled, well, it was partially destroyed, and then it was underwater somewhere near Norway, and you know, this is the part that I, I remember in, I was a teenager, or I was, well, I was 20 years old, hey, um, but Europe, and especially Norway being nearby, offered help, offered to send uh, a rescue team, and the Russian Navy turned it down, Is this, this should really be sounding familiar by now, and saying that, well, you know, it's too late anyway. There's been an explosion on the submarine and they would, no one would survive. And of course, there's, it's a loaded uh, uh, response because Russia doesn't want anything military to be uh, uh, studied or seen as the secrecy of this whole thing. And uh, that's the other reason, of course, why they would, even with the risk of more people dying, they would not accept uh, involvement of anyone else. And it turns out, I didn't know this, I did not know this, that when they finally did go rescuing uh, the, the Kursk, after the Russian military removed whatever it is that they wanted to keep secret, um, uh, it was actually a Dutch uh, rescue team, a rescue firm that lifted the submarine out of the water, an amazing feat. And what they found was that um, there were a lot of bodies were in this this rearmost cabin uh, of the submarine, which is supposed to be able to survive on very little oxygen in case there is such an explosion as there was. And um, what's really surprising to me, I didn't know, um, uh, it was written in a letter that there were about nine or ten of them that were still alive and just waiting and for many hours after the explosion. Um, so, you know, th there it is. I mean, it's easy to say now, but um, it, 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 they could have saved people, and they, and they didn't, you know, and it's always a military game, and Russia is not the only country, of course, that does these horrid, what I feel are horrid things in the name of military secrecy, the United States. Lots of countries do things like this, but you know, just knowing this case is, was very sad. So I was uh, looking at all this and reading this while um, walking around inside of a, a submarine from the 50s. An amazing, amazing thing, you know. The amount of people that lived in this tube, in this giant thing underwater, going around the world. Like, what a strange, what a strange pastime. What a strange job I drive a submarine. I'm a, I'm on a submarine crew. And what's your job? Well, we, 
we sneak around underwater and we poke our heads up occasionally. And uh, if, if we're needed, we'll launch a destructive uh, uh, projectile uh, at either a city, uh, a plane, a, a boat, you name it. That's what we do if, we needed, if we're needed. Submarines. Amazing. So yeah, I was fascinated by that in, in Kaliningrad. And then I also did, uh, you know, the other kinds of tourism, going to, uh, I don't know, little cathedral they have there from the German era going to i went to a bunker museum which was the bunker of the german command during world war ii um because there was such a massive battle uh to to take kaliningrad from the germans or what was then called konigsberg and you know here comes another difficult topic um it's a museum so there's a certain element of making you understand what it looked and felt like in that time, which is definitely what I was fascinated by, what I wanted to get a taste of. But then there's this element of pride, which I find, though not surprising, always disappointing. And, and what I mean is, you're walking around this bunker, there's photos of the Germans and the Russians and the death, although they really clean that up, right? But there's lots of mentions of how many people died, the numbers, you get to see the numbers a lot. Um, you know, I guess if they really wanted to teach you about war, they would show you nonstop photos of dead bodies. That would perhaps really bring it home. But that's not what we do, right? We, we show uh, generals and victorious soldiers, and it's, it's all very glorified. So a lot of it was dedicated to these wonderful heroes, the Russian soldiers and how they, the German, this powerful German general had to surrender and, and what a point of pride it was. And um, at some point they suggest that the surrender saved lives. Fair enough. I guess most surrenders do. But uh, that's on the heels of having taken lots of lives on both sides. And, uh, you know, what disturbed me, most of it was in Russian, so I missed uh, the meaning in the words. But I picked up enough that so much about pride and... and Hooray for us, and look what we did, and we took this city, and we killed all these thousands of people, but, you know, we had to. <laughs> and I just think there's another way to do war memorials, and many countries have gotten it right. Even in the United States, many war memorials are not, correct me if I'm wrong in the form of email or comments, are not about chest-beating and saying... Yeah, we beat those guys. I mean, people do this, you know, in, in conversation, but but a lot of monuments aren't doing that, aren't don't set out to do that. And I give them credit wherever they are, because it's it's disingenuous, it's manipulative. You know, this whole talking about war as if one side is really noble and as if Anything positive, really. I mean, I mean, I understand you can stop a genocide, I suppose, but you didn't really stop a genocide in World War II. You just kind of, well, you, you got there, uh, I guess, before it, it grew even larger than the hugeness that it was. But I just, my, my point here is obvious, I think. War is nothing to glorify ever, even if you're in the winning side, whatever that means. So take it easy, you know, and it all comes back to this, Russian psychology that's going on right now or mass psychology or brainwashing really um, You know the the marketing people Edward Bernays's descendants are 
working for the Russian military. They've been working for the U.S. military for years, but now they're really working with the Russian military. And I say they're Bernays' descendants because they're all about manipulating the public, playing on emotions, um, and generating so much support. And so everywhere you go, even in the, in the museums, which are supposed to be, I thought, about capturing history and being able to feel what it felt like and, and respecting the past and the dead above all, um, or the living, you know. Instead of that, it's, it's just a tool. You know, I was very disappointed to have to go into this interesting construction, you know, odd time, very sad, uh, but then just to be thrown these patriotic messages like we're children, like, like, First of all, like we did anything, right? We weren't there. We were, this was our, you know, previous generations. But we act as if, look what we did. Look what, the, look at this. Look at this wonder. Here's the bright side of forty to fifty thousand deaths in, in in the course of a month or whatever it was. There's no bright side. That's my point. Okay. Uh, so you know, no surprise. We know this is happening, but it's sad every time I see it. Um, and then I. I make my way back from Kaliningrad, uh, back here to Amsterdam, and the whole time in Germany, also uh, watching the news regarding the migration, uh, sorry, the migrants and the migration that's taking place, mass refugees on mass coming. And there's something extremely sad um, about it. And you can say what's really sad is the people who live here's reaction, and that would be a fine point, but... I find it sad that so many people, I know they've always had such situations, but this one in particular, you know, just having to leave their homes and just nothing to lose, nothing left really. So let's, you know, let's risk everything. Let's, we don't even know. We just have to keep moving until we're in a safe place. We have to keep moving until the, the, the life we hope we can have is, is within reach. I don't know. Um, this is the world, you know, and, uh, this is our world. It's been our world for a while, but it really seems to have, uh, caught up to us this summer, if it hadn't already, um, that, that, you know, we're part of all this. A war in Syria is, is a war in Syria that includes side effects for Germany. A, a war in Libya is, is a problem, an issue for not only Libyans, but, but for, for everyone, you know, we share these things. Um, the United States might have an ocean or two to sort of filter or buffer feeling the impact directly. But the truth is we're way past the era where you can point to any kind of land or sea and say, well, it's on the other side of that. So it doesn't really have an impact. Everything has an impact. And we were silly, I think, those of us who um, thought in the beginning that, uh, you know, this conflict in Syria would be short or, or not as bad. You know, it is every bit as bad uh, as we could have imagined beyond our imaginations. Maybe that's why it's so hard to, to understand or picture or, or grasp. And um, now, you know, it's put in the context of refugees and it's so hard. I mean... I have a hard time figuring out life. I can only imagine someone coming from Syria arriving in the Netherlands. Not that they're accepting that many people, but if they were, um, 
that's hard. You know, th this is complicated. This is a difficult situation. It's, it's, and then, and then the, the amount of people that are looking at them like they're criminals, like they're, you know, this whole idea of being illegal, right? That humans are illegal based on where they put their feet. But we've had those rules for a while, I guess. So it's a, it's a difficult summer everywhere. Obviously, most difficult in Syria, in Libya, if you're living in what are horrendous conditions under the constant threat of death every day. Um, so what are we going to do? You know, that's, that's what's really hard to answer. Like, what are we going to do? Help people, yes. Um, save as many people as possible, absolutely. How exactly? Well, let's, let's look at it, I guess, you know, issue by issue, case by case. Um, yeah, it's hard. Oh, I'm tired just talking about it. I was just thinking the other day, like, if I were prime minister, like, Merkel's getting a lot of shit for how she handles um, the coming of, of refugees and... Fair enough, you know, it's, if you look at the steps she's taken, you can find plenty to criticize, so, so go for it, right? Um, but I was thinking, you know, if I was in her shoes, what would I do? Um, you know, you, you like to, maybe you are someone who has really clear ideas and solutions, but this is a, you know, a million people, well, they're not all a million arriving at the same moment, but... You know, a million people arrive in my country. Um, you know, it, 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 I'm curious what step one, step two, step three would be in the best case. I don't have them right away. Like shelter, obviously, and food. So you can go over the basic needs to start. But then there's this whole question of after you do the basic needs, then what do you, how do you, how do you then say, okay, this city is where a couple of hundred or a thousand can go? I don't, can you do that? I don't know. You know, clearly I don't have experience governing, but in these moments, I also respect whether they deserve it or not. I respect the complexity of leadership and decision making because this is hard. <laughs> um... There's so many, what do you call it, like butterfly effect, right? Like one thing affects another thing. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It doesn't mean that you, it's all a mistake. Uh, it just, yeah, wow. You get what I'm saying? Like this is hard. This is a hard issue to resolve in, in one, two, three steps. And I often look at things as <laughs> what's step one, what's step two, what's step three. This is I don't know. There's a hundred steps and, and plenty of room to make mistakes along the way. And people will not like it. And perhaps the refugees themselves, perhaps citizens, perhaps some... It's hard. Life is, seems so complex these days. All right. I think I might stop around here. I would like to announce, uh, if you're still listening, <laughs> um, September... Oh, let me get my calendar. I'm doing an event live in Amsterdam, and I'd like you to come if you're if you're in the Amsterdam area. Um, I'm having so I'm launching a new podcast. There it is. This one will continue to exist in some form or another, and I will put the the new series, which is called Realities Podcast. It's the Realities Podcast because 
everyone seems to live in their own reality, and that's always how it's been, but yet we live side by side, right? We have these shared meaning, and we also have this individual meaning, and, and we're just negotiating this every day, and that's what we do. It's normal life. So I decided Realities Podcast is a name that makes more sense to me for what I'm looking at and thinking these days. So I'm having the inaugural launch of the Realities Podcast on the 27th, 27th of September in Amsterdam. Uh, should be around 7 o'clock, I'll confirm that, at Studio Bar, which is a wonderful space on the Rosengracht, uh, which is right next to the Jordan, a stone's throw away from the Anne Frank house. And I'm, ha- I'm do- interviewing... My friend, Chui Chong, Chu Chong is a, um, he's a Swiss Malaysian who, more importantly, I think, was the financial manager, CTO, no, C, CFO, chief financial officer for WWF, not the Wrestling Federation Americans, but uh, the, uh, the uh, World Wildlife uh, Federation. And he was there with them for, I don't know, the better part of 20 years. And he saw some amazing things. He wrote a book about it. And that's sort of where I step in here. Uh, We met years ago when I was in the world of sustainable investment. And he's been on uh, this podcast. So I wanted to help him with the book, ask him about his, you know, now looking back at his career. He has a lot of crazy stories. And we're going to talk about organizations and, and helping the planet and the whole need for donations and donors and the powerful and the rich and the poor and everything in between uh, and, and what he sees now, you know, after all that, what, how he makes sense of the world or does it make less sense? I don't know. His reality is, is my focus and it's the first episode of the Realities Podcast. Uh, when the site is really clean and working, you can go to uh, realitiespodcast.com. Um, I'm, it's up now, but I, I still have to clean it more and fix it more working on it. So you're welcome to come, but you should sign up studiobar.nl. I'll put in a link and I'll talk to you again about it real soon. I hope to do a podcast, maybe like this, if you don't mind this format, uh, I know I come back to it every few episodes. Um, let's, let's do some monologue you know, bicycle Mark talks to audience, directly kind of podcasts if if that's all right with you uh, i'm enjoying it although i feel like a crazy person now i'm gonna drink my chai thank you very much uh citizenreporter.org is the website and of course as i mentioned sourcecode.berlin you can listen to a lot of the work i've done this summer uh and 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 there we go these are audio programs for audio fans okay people thanks so much for listening and uh talk to you again real soon bye bye Here's uh, Liberate Your Data, which is the, I, th- I think so far, the official open data <laughs> camp song. So uh, it's called CS, well, Liberate Your Data, CSV. And feel free to sing along if you, if you get the gist of it. And, and, you know, wave lighters if you're into burning things down. <laughs> <laughs> when I find myself in times of trouble, open data comes to me. Whisper words of wisdom, CSV And in my hour of darkness I have files that machines can read Limited with commas, CSV CSV, CSV, 
CSV, oh CSV, liberate your data, CSV, 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 oh CSV, liberate your data, CSV. Even hostile file formats like PDFs and PPTs. We will scrape your tables, CSV. Locked away on corporate servers, we demand transparency. Liberate your data, CSV. A CSV, 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 oh CSV. Liberate your data. CSV, 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 oh CSV, liberate your data with appropriate provisions for privacy such as anonymization and removal of identifying information, CSV. There's a code from T.S. Eliot that I just love. We shall not cease from exploring. And at the end of our exploration, we will return to where we started and know the place for the first time. That's, in a sense, where I'm beginning to be.